2: Right now on Last Call, coming to a halt. Shipping traffic plummeting as the Red Sea conflict ramping up. But is this disruption worth a wider war? We're going to ask Congressman Ro Khanna. Trump, 2.0, a top strategist, finding signs the market may be prepping for his reelection. Blurred vision. Two more big names joining Netflix, snubbing Apple's hot new product. Just plain confusing. The government spiking the Spirit JetBlue merger, and now... There are worries about their long-term future. So why did taxpayers bail them out to begin with? Plus, it has now been a week since the first Bitcoin ETF launched. Which ones are giving investors the early bang for the buck? And a shock to the system. Why so many new EV drivers are getting in accidents and the reason may not be what you think. All that and more over the next hour. So as always, belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. Hello, everybody. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us. We've got all that and more coming up in our hour. But first up on last call, it's deja vu all over again on Wall Street. Yeah, it's early. But so far, this year is looking a lot like the end of last year, because it's still all about the same stocks, the big cap tech names. The Nasdaq 100 and its ETF hitting new records, another big ETF also popping, tapping an all-time high. Today was actually about Apple. Its investors had their best day in eight months, believe it or not, following a big upgrade on the street. We'll talk more about Apple a bit later on in the show. Now, not to be outdone, Microsoft hitting yet another new high. Both those companies jockeying for the title of the most valuable company on the planet. But it is not just phones and software. you got to power those things as well. And so semiconductor stocks keep soaring. Taiwan semi up 10% today. After a blowout quarter, NVIDIA AMD also at all-time highs, along with a big semiconductor ETF. So even with all that, here's what really makes this rally remarkable. The last few days, it's been happening or continuing as interest rates are rising. A 10-year Treasury yield climbing above 4.1% today was below 3.8% just a couple of weeks ago. So the money just keeps coming into big tech, even as many strategists have said the markets are going to finally start broadening out. But that, of course, has not hap- happened yet. It may never happen. 11 trading days into the year, the market cap-weighted S&P 500 has outperformed the equal-weighted index by a record margin, and according to our friends at Bespoke. In other words, mega caps continue to be the top dogs of Wall Street, and my prediction of small cap outperformance this year so far is looking like a total dumpster fire. But it is early. So is big tech still the place to be for investors? Let's talk about it with our lead-off market panel. G Squared, Private Wealth, Chief Investment Officer, Victoria Green, and Sandhill, Global Advisors, Chief Investment Officer, Brenda Vangelo, both CNBC contributors. Victoria, first to you. I know, listen, December 31st, <laughs> January 1st, it's just the number you change if you write a check still. Okay, but are you surprised that valuations be darned Big tech continues to soar. Not
3: at all, not at all. Irrationality can persist far longer than we think it can, right? You know, Animal spirits are coming out, they're getting talked about again, and you have so much cash still on the sidelines. I think Wall Street Journal reported today, 8.8 trillion in CDs and money markets. That's just waiting for an opportunity. I think people are gonna start to get FOMO. You can still see some more cash coming off the sidelines. And and you know what? There was a lot of hate against Apple recently, and they're starting to rally out of that on the VR and the upgrade today from Bank of America. But my saying right now, if it ain't broke, don't don't worry about trying to fix it. Just stay with them.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Brenda, too, because our point about rates, I mean, it's been like an automatic rates go down, stocks go up, particularly big tech. But lately, the last couple of days, maybe the last couple of weeks, rates have gone up and big tech has gone with it. Are you surprised?
4: Well, I think this is a healthy development that I think we've all been waiting for. Knowing that just how much of an impact rates have been having on equity market uh, swings one way or the other over the better part of the last year. But I think, as we know, you know, there is this disconnect between what the futures market is predicting in terms of rate cuts uh, this year and what many think is a more realistic assumption. Meaning, futures market had been assuming six uh, rate cuts. Uh, The Fed is saying three. We think it's probably somewhere in between. So we need to work through this uh, period, and I think the market's doing that. Uh, We've seen futures expectations come down a little bit for a March rate cut, but I think it's important that this is happening in the midst of a period where we're learning about pretty positive fundamentals, particularly in tech, And even though it's not surprising that tech has done pretty well, especially if we look at fourth quarter earnings projections, Mm -hmm. if you were to strip out the mega cap eight stocks, we'd actually be looking at a projected earnings decline uh, for everything else collectively. So uh, these, our companies are continuing to grow. And we think that in some cases, fundamentals should start to get a little bit better, particularly.
2: Brenda, I want to come back to you on that because you said you brought it up. You said the F word, fundamentals. (laughs) And I didn't think fundamentals mattered anymore, but today, Taiwan Semi had good fundamentals and the stock went up. It kind of brought me a little comfort to my market soul. Brenda, did it to you that the fundamentals apparently still may matter? It's not just
4: rates. Yes, it did. And I I was encouraged that, that that news came out. The stock acted like it did. The rest of the semiconductor industry followed suit in some respects and it happened on a day that rates were moving higher. So I think it's a positive in my mind. I don't know if it's here to stay, but uh, certainly focus on fundamentals um, is, is, a, is a great thing in, in our view. And the commentary uh, from time on semiconductor is also very constructive for the semiconductor industry in general, in terms of overall inventory levels, AI contribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems like the worst may be over uh, for some parts. And as we know, uh, AI has been great for a while now, but no signs that that's slowing down price at
2: all. to book victoria price to earnings price to sales <laughs> price to whatever price to eyeballs like back in the 2000s by any metric the big tech stock the market itself but in particular the big tech stocks it- are not only not cheap but by any measure historically very expensive are you concerned because the market writ large does not seem to be
3: Well, it goes back to that F word, right? Fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And for right now, again, it's not really trading off of fundamentals. It's trading more off of optimism. And and, I know, you know, you were an investor back in the 2000s when we went through the internet bubble and the internet hype and craze. And you know how stretched that can get. And we aren't at tech bubble levels yet. Yes. If you look at two standard deviations, we are definitely well above norms. You know, you can try saying, well, if we pull these out, the rest of the market isn't as expensive without the magnificent seven, but the magnificent seven is what's working and we're verting back. This today was a trading day similar to what moved in two thousand and twenty three. You know, we had utilities and REITs in January have mm-hmm. been the rate sensitive sectors. They're down, you know, but then you've got tech running and, and forgetting everything else. Don't worry about price, just buy it because they're growing. And investors are believing in that narrative still. Now we hit earnings next week. We've got Tesla and Netflix reporting next week. You know, you are gonna have to start paying a little bit of attention to fundamentals. But then again, everybody's so excited about what the future will bring. I think Meta news broke lately that they're buying something like three hundred Fifty thousand chips or something like that from NVIDIA to eventually power it. You have this built-in demand for chips. You have technology becoming more and more ingrained in our society and everyday life. And I just see it being able to run a little bit further. Irrational? Absolutely. But that doesn't it yeah. mean it's not investable.
2: I just would like to find out the next NVIDIA or the next Starbucks or the next IBM, by the way, one of your great calls the last <laughs> couple of years. Uh, but that's for another segment on another day. Brenda and Victoria, thank you both very much. All right, inside the market, folks, let's take a look at your studs and duds of the day. The markets all rose across the board. Inside the S&P 500, Fastenal moving quickly higher, up 7%. Yeah, fundamentals, a strong earnings beat. Apparently, people are buying a lot of power tools and things like safety gloves. The big decliner, ouch. Discover Financial, again. All right, a lot more to do here on Last Call. We are just getting warmed up and up next. Hot on the heels of making a stir in Davos, Jamie Dimon's pay revealed. We've got the numbers. Plus, Bitcoin's ETF era, one week in. Which one is bringing the most bang for the buck for investors so far? Kate Rooney is up with that. We could
5: try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere the way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would, or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeer.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Support
3: for this program is provided by Chevron.
2: All right, let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you and Wall Street will be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, a tough day for Macy's and many of its workers. The retailer announcing major layoffs, cutting 2,350 employees. Companies also closing five stores to cut costs. as sales slow. Macy's slightly in the red after hours. Next up, a raise for CEO Jamie Dimon. His compensation package increased 4% to $36 million last year. He did well, as investors in J.P. Morgan Chase did well, stock up 26% on the year. And this is cool. Moments ago, four astronauts blasting off to the International Space Station. They rode in a SpaceX Dragon capsule on top of a Falcon 9 rocket. Look at that. They will arrive early Saturday morning. The crew members are from Italy, Sweden, and Turkey. Space travel never gets old. And finally, another headache for Apple and its upcoming Vision Pro headset. Bloomberg reporting that Spotify and YouTube will not offer their apps on the new virtual reality tech. This follows a similar move by Netflix. Now, this could be a blow to Apple because video, of course, is seen as one of the big reasons that somebody would spend $3,500 on a virtual reality set of goggles. But is this really a hit to Apple or was this always going to be a niche product no matter how successful it was? Joining us now is The Verges, Deputy Editor Alex Heath. Alex, you have used a Vision Pro headset. I want to get your sort of review next. But first, is this product always going to be a niche, or is this product actually critical to the world's second biggest company?
6: I think a lot of these developers, the names you just listed that aren't on the Vision Pro when it launches, are really taking a wait-and-see approach here because Apple hasn't said this publicly, but the rumor that we're hearing and others is that they're gonna make very few of these in year one, less than a million, which is nothing for Apple. They're really tiptoeing into this category. It is a big deal for them. I mean, Apple doesn't put out new product categories like this very often. The last one was the Apple Watch back in like 2015. So this doesn't happen often from Apple. And the Vision Pro, is a, it's a difficult product to sell because you have to try it. Um, and they do need this content. But this year is like, this is a glorified developer kit. Uh, You know, they're really just pitching this for early adopters, people who are really enthusiastic. Uh, So I'm actually not surprised to see a lot of these big companies kind of sit on the sidelines.
2: Well, yeah, looking at the Vision Pro's website on Apple.com, it says free your desktop and your apps will follow. Apparently not YouTube, Spotify or Netflix. Or Alex, do you think they could eventually come around if indeed the product does seem to be a hit?
6: If you're a company like YouTube, Netflix, uh, do you want to be investing in a category that is subscale, you know, less than a million units a year? Is it worth your development time for that? Uh, you know, one of the only big uh, external media companies that's partnering on the Vision Pro is Disney, which has a long you know, storied connection to Apple back with Steve Jobs and Pixar, etc. So... You know, another factor here is that a lot of these companies, they've had a lot of skirmishes with Apple in the 2D world, in the App Store, right? Spotify has been very mad about the fees that Apple charges in the store. Netflix has voice similar concerns and YouTube probably doesn't want to share any of its revenue it makes from its TV package on the Vision Pro either with Apple. So this is going to put Apple in a tough spot. Either they need to loosen their restrictions on what they charge developers or uh, this category needs to become so big that developers can't afford to ignore it.
2: I want to get your quick take. You've used it. I saw another review uh, by well-known tech reviewer online. Kind of cool. But what it kept coming back to was how heavy it was and the strain on the neck what was your take
6: i did notice the heaviness i got to use it for about 30 minutes uh last summer Uh, When it was first announced, Um, the thing Apple doesn't show in any of its videos and the photos you're seeing online is there's a battery pack with a wire that has to connect into the headset. This thing is clunky. This is probably the least elegant Apple product that Apple's ever done. So they've got to slim it down, I think, for it to really go mainstream. The weight is going to be an issue. It's only got like a two hour battery life, though. So this isn't something they even think you'll be wearing for that long.
2: All right. Alex Heath, really appreciate the view. I can't wait to test it myself. Thank you. All right, next up. It has officially been a week since Bitcoin ETFs began trading. So which ETFs are performing the best and the worst, of course, very, very early in the game? Kate Rooney has crunched the numbers and is here with the analysis. Kate.
7: Hey, Sully. So big winner so far in this space, the asset manager giant BlackRock so far. Bernstein analysts highlight that BlackRock iShares is so far an early winner in this herd of applications so far that were Approved last week, the fund has brought in $1 billion roughly in flows in just the first week. The fund has also seen a cumulative volume of more than $2 billion. That has slowed slightly, Brian, after that banner first day. Grayscale, meanwhile, GBTC, that might appear like a winner. It has more assets, for example, than BlackRock's ETF with $29 billion out of the gates. But that is because it actually converted an existing publicly traded vehicle into an ETF. It's already seen about a billion in net outflows in the past week. That's according to FactSet, likely because of what it's charging, the fee. It's about six times higher than the average at 1.5%. Grayscale has argued that it's got the scale and liquidity to justify charging that premium. It has also seen hundreds of millions of net inflows. The runner-up after BlackRock, you got another behemoth in Fidelity. Then you've got Bitwise, which appears to be punching above its weight it's a crypto-native firm offering one of these ETFs. you got Kathy Wood's ARK and 21 Shares ETF on that list of the most assets so far flooding into these new funds, Brian. Pricing is still getting figured out. They're not exactly perfectly pricing uh, and tracking the price of Bitcoin, but this interest so far has put Bitcoin ETFs above silver ETFs in terms of assets under management. So it's now one of the biggest... Commodities-based ETF groups Uh, so far, Brian.
2: All the scuttle, though, has really kind of been about how, you know, it was a no-brainer. Whenever, by the way, whenever anybody in the stock market says that's a no-brainer, go the other way as fast as you can. That said, (laughs) bitcoins, all it's done is pretty much go down since the ETFs have started trading. It's kind of interesting.
7: It's such a good example of the hedge fund term buy the rumor, sell the news. This was one of the big fears heading into this, that the price... Got ahead of itself right that bitcoin had been so pent up and all of these investors were so excited about the launch of this that the the reality wouldn't quite meet up to the hype and that's what we've seen at least in the underlying assets of so far you've seen a lot of volatility heading into this and after the launch but it's been pretty pretty much sideways which in terms of the maturation of this asset class you could argue is a good thing you don't want all that volatility if you're gonna have wall street involved and this thing's gonna stick around for the long term it's probably a good thing for some that it's a little less volatile than it used to there Kate, needs
2: to be, at least. Kate Rooney, we get, we're one week in. We, I think we have many weeks to go, but I don't know. We'll I think see what, so. We'll
7: see you next we'll, week, we'll see right? What, exactly. We'll see what <laughs> Same happens. Same time next week. <laughs> exactly.
2: We hope. Kate Rooney, thank you. All right, still ahead. The growing Red Sea conflict could already be a big issue for the supply chain, maybe bigger than you think, and there's no sign it's getting better. We're going to talk about whether or not we can go to war with <laughs> Yemen with Congressman Ro Khanna of California. Next. Welcome back. The multinational effort to secure the Red Sea is in full swing. And today, President Biden was asked if the airstrikes in Yemen are working. Listen closely to his response. Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. Rather stark admission while taking a rare reporter question. The airstrikes in Yemen are not working, according to the president, but the attacks will continue anyway. Anyway, despite the elevated risk in the Red Sea, oil prices have actually dropped since the Iranian-backed Houthis began their attacks in October. The only major shift has been a massive decline in ships traveling the sea. Freight container volumes through the region have collapsed, down roughly 65 percent from normal volumes. By the way, it's going to be a major economic hit to Egypt, which relies greatly on revenue from the Suez Canal. Let's talk about all these issues with Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna. Congressman Khanna, it's great to have you back on. Last call. I want to get to the election and tech and AI in a minute, but I got to start with this. You tweeted out today about what we just heard from the president, and then you topped it. You said, glad the president agrees with me that the strikes are not working. Next time, come to Congress instead of McGurk. I assume you're referring to National Security Council coordinator for the Middle East, Brent McGurk. Congressman, doesn't Article 1 of the Constitution prohibit the White House, the president, from unilaterally launching attacks on a sovereign nation without the approval of Congress?
5: Yes. I mean, this is not a complicated question. The White House had time to talk to the Australians, the Canadians, the United Nations, the Brits, for a month and a half, and they didn't have the courtesy to come to Congress. This is a violation of the Constitution. The president has the right for imminent self-defense, where he can notify Congress in 48 hours. That means if the Houthis launched a missile against our ship, you could take that missile out. But you can't have bombing attack after bombing attack without congressional authorization.
2: Well, we want to defend any lives in the region. And I have a relative, by the way, that's on one of the naval ships in the region. I want to defend the lives. But I, I feel like Congressman, that this is the first time I can remember, and doing this for almost 30 years now, where we launched preemptive and sort of proactive strikes inside of a country to defend commerce, shipping.
5: Well, as the president said, they're not working. The Red Sea today is less safe for commercial ships than it was when we started these strikes. And If we talk to the Saudis, which I have, or UAE, they would tell you that they had a bombing campaign against the Houthis for seven years, and it only entrenched the Houthis. And what we should have is a diplomatic solution and statesmanship, having the Saudis and UAE involved, telling the Houthis that if they want to have involvement in Yemen's government, they need to stop these attacks. But we haven't even tried that. And I guess what I want to know is, if he wants, if the president wants an authorization for military force. What's our plan, and how are we going to be effective? Brett McGurk has been responsible for the disastrous policy in Iraq. He was responsible for the disastrous policy in Yemen. I mean, the question is, what
2: has he gotten right? Well, I, I worry. Congressman, we, we just had some New Jersey guardsmen, reservists, be called up to Iraq and Syria. I understand it's part of a regular rotation, but I have a friend also in that group, and he's, he's nervous. He's got seven kids. He's going to northern Iraq and then to Syria You've got bombs being set off inside Iraq. You've got what's going on, obviously, with Israel and Hamas. You've got the Houthis, you know, ascending missiles and, and, and drone ships effectively here. I just wonder how close we might actually be to a, a hot war, for lack of a better term, in that region, Congressman. It's, it's terrifying to think about again. Well, I'm concerned. I think we can avoid it, but I'll tell you something
5: that unites the right and the left. Most Americans don't want us to get involved in another war in the Middle East. They don't want to put our troops at risk. They don't want to put our embassies at risk. They certainly don't want to put our homeland at risk, and they'd rather that we be investing in building up uh, our country. And so my view is that the president needs to figure out how do we de-escalate yeah. the tensions in that region. Uh, and make sure that uh, we're not increasing the risk of a war.
2: Yeah, I would just hope any president, this one, the next one, the next one after that, whatever party would come to Congress and uphold the Constitution on this issue in particular. But, Congressman, let's shift gears for a second. The election expected to be plagued with waves of misinformation. There's probably stuff out there. You represent a big chunk of Silicon Valley. How are tech—I'm sure you're talking to these tech companies. How are they preparing— for a potential flood of mis- and disinformation because as you know and we all know, we need as a nation these elections to be seen as the most secure and honest in modern history. I'm sure you would agree.
5: Well, it's a big challenge. The first thing we need to do is clearly label something that is AI or bot generated as computer generated. So Americans know whether it is something is human and real or whether it is uh, being generated by AI. Uh, And we need to make sure that people's privacy is protected. Right now, what you have is these big tech companies are taking a lot of data and then they're targeting uh, a lot of content at particular people. And that's really what creates the uh, opportunity for virality and the spread of misinformation. I want to protect Americans' data. That should be bipartisan.
2: Yeah. How do we do that? Just like on Instagram, you got to, you know, tag if you've been paid so people know it's an advertisement, have some Warning or some label, this is computer generated, it may be false.
5: Exactly. I mean, you should have labeling for anything that is computer generated, but you also should have a clear Internet bill of rights in this country so that uh, meta can't just take any data from your uh, using Instagram and then use that data to target you and have an AI algorithm show you information that uh, that they think that the machine thinks you may like and share. Uh, We need to restore people's privacy in -hmm. this country.
2: Congressman Ro Khanna of California, never afraid to come on and, and take the hard questions on hard topics, and we really appreciate it, and so do our viewers. Congressman Khanna, thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Coming up first, your tax dollars bailed them out, but is the government now setting up Spirit and other airlines to fail? Money in, money out. We'll try to make sense of it. Ahead. All right, a bonus TNT for you. The European Union's competition watchdog intending to block Amazon's buyout of iRobot. That according to the Wall Street Journal minutes ago. iRobot makes the Roomba vacuum. Amazon agreed to buy iRobot for $1.7 billion in August of 2022. That price later brought down to $1.4 billion, about $52 a share. If the deal gets whacked, iRobot, as you might imagine, is going to get whacked, and it is iRobot shares right now down 41% in real time. Amazon too big to be really reacting. It, it, it wouldn't matter if Amazon doesn't get it, but it matters a lot to iRobot shareholders. By the way, is there any deal that the EU won't block? All right, another other deal news and blocking news, a rough day for Spirit Airlines and its investors. Shares totally grounded this week after a federal judge put a stop to its proposed merger with JetBlue. Spirit fell again today. Following a report from The Wall Street Journal, the company was looking into what were called restructuring options. Now, some investors panicked on those ominous-sounding words, restructuring. But the stock did rebound after Spirit said it was not pursuing a restructuring, i.e. like a bankruptcy, but rather looking at refinancing some of its debt. Now, just a short time ago, S&P Global downgraded Spirit's debt to C+, which means the company, in Wall Street's view, has a high risk of a possible credit default. Even still, Spirit still facing challenges. Top analyst Helene Becker out with a note today saying that the rejected merger could lead to Spirit Airlines going out of business and ultimately liquidating its assets. Again, just one Wall Street opinion, but Becker is one of the most listened to voices on Wall Street. But consider this. When the pandemic hit, airlines got billions of your taxpayer dollars in bailouts. Spirit Airlines receiving over $330 million, while JetBlue got nearly a billion dollars. By the way, those numbers not that far behind the current market cap of each of those airlines. So I guess here's our question. What do we make of a federal judge perhaps crushing one or two airlines less than three years after the federal government also gave the two over a billion dollars to stay solvent? Joining us now is Yale Professor of Economics and former Chief Economist at the Antitrust Division of the US Department of Justice, Fiona Scott Morton. Uh, Welcome, welcome to The Last Call. Uh, uh, is Is our question fair or are we comparing totally just two different things?
9: I think you're comparing apples and oranges. The COVID bailout really went to everybody. Lots of companies got funds because it was a really unusual time. People stayed home. They didn't fly. All the airlines got, got bailed out because nobody was flying. But then when things return to normal, we go back to our normal way of operating, and that includes what are called the antitrust laws, and those prohibit mergers that lessen competition. And normally when I speak to people about airlines, they're not all concerned about airline profit. What they're really worried about is high fares. And of course, high fares lead to airline profit. And what we really want is airlines to compete against each other and bring down the fares. And when the fares come down, and we all enjoy that, that of course means that there's less profit left for the airline. So we don't really want to be rejoicing in high airline profits. We want to be Pushing airlines like Spirit and JetBlue and all the rest of them, United and Delta, Mm -hmm. to operate efficiently and give us low prices.
2: Yeah, we're showing all the airline deals that we've had over the past 15 or so years. Fiona, Northwest Airlines, anybody remember them? AirTran, you know, Virgin America, Continental. I, I think the idea being is that the airline, by the way, People's Express, Braniff, PSA, Western, Piedmont, Eastern, I can keep going, I'll stop. The airline business is tough, maybe one of the toughest out there. I guess the idea just being we gave them a bunch of money. I, I get that. Most people stopped. I kept flying. It was like two people on the plane. It was actually kind of nice. And and yet now the judge is going to probably it may send Spirit Airlines into the uh, some other realm. I
9: don't really think the judge is gonna do that because the testimony in the trial from the top executives of Spirit was that they had a plan, that they were not thinking that they were going bankrupt. And today, as you said, they also announced that they have a plan. So I I'm I'm skeptical that actual bankruptcy is is imminent, but also remember, even if we do want Spirit to get a partner or an alliance or something, we maybe don't want them to ally with a close competitor, because that reduces competition and causes fares to go up. So let's have some other creative solution that keeps choice for Americans. You listed all those airlines. Mm-hmm. You and I be close to the same age. I remember them, too. And those were times when there were a lot of fare wars, and consumers really benefited from that.
2: Yep, they did. And a lot of those airlines, kind of, kind of amazing. The PSA with the little smiley face out west and uh, western as well. Good discussion there. Fair points. Fiona, appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. All right, let's get now to our quicker than the ticker. All the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. If you're on Ozempic or Mount Jaro, listen up. Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, the maker of those drugs, just hiked prices. According to the Wall Street Journal, Mount Jaro's going up by 4.5%, Ozempic, 3.5%, both higher than the rate of inflation. Could you give up your smartphone for a month? Siggy's Yogurt will pay you up to $10,000 to do it. It's part of their new Siggy's Digital Detox program. If you're selected, you'll get $10,000, a lockbox for your phone so you don't cheat, and three months' supply of yogurt.
0: With great power comes great responsibility.
2: And a hefty price tag. An original first issue of the Amazing Spider-Man comic book just sold for $1.3 million. Spidey hit the newsstands back in 1963. Ranch-flavored chapstick? Yep. Hurt's Bees and Hidden Valley Ranch partnering to create lip balms in ranch, buffalo, celery, and carrot flavors. We're not kidding. And get this. Apparently the collaboration is sold out, but you can join the wait list if you want. All right, I want to hear from you. So ranch-flavored chapstick, yes or no? Buffalo wing-flavored chapstick, yes or no? Carrot-flavored? First off, carrots, no. Just carrots in general, no thanks. What do you think, folks? Would you do that? Ranch-flavored chapstick? I don't know. We'll see. All right, up next here on Last Call, here is a question statistically half of you probably will not like. Is the market already starting to price in a Trump win? It may be, and we'll lay it out in a nonpartisan way. Plus, at last, some good news on the drought long plaguing America's West. Some very good news that you may not hear anywhere else. I love the new graphics. All right, time for your daily RBI. And here on Last Call, we like to bring you good news once in a while. Remember, on Tuesday night, we gave you six trillion reasons to be optimistic about the market. That was the money on the sidelines. By the way, it headlined The Wall Street Journal today. And here's another piece of news that you may not be hearing anywhere else. Didn't get a lot of attention. I looked for it. Remember, not even three years ago, a horrible drought gripped much of the Western United States. That drought, combined with climate change-fueled heat, sent water levels plummeting in many of America's most important lakes and reservoirs. Nevada's Lake Mead and Utah's Lake Powell got dangerously low, nearing what they call deadpool levels, where the water is too low to run the dam's power station, potentially leaving a huge hole in power generation. But given all the rain and snow the last couple of years, I thought we'll go back and check on the current situation. And we found some very good news. All the major western lakes and reservoirs have nicely refilled. In fact, Lake Powell's water level is up 43 feet in a year. Lake Mead up nearly 30 feet from its low reading of less than two years ago. That is very good news for the operation of both lakes' vitally important hydroelectric dams. These are some of the quickest water ads, by the way, in recent history. And there's some more good news. California has 17 reservoirs. 15 of those 17 are now either at, near, or above their historical averages. That is a long way from two and a half years ago when they were scarily low. By the way, my grandpa used to walk around the Diamond Valley Reservoir outside LA nearly every day with his dog. Some good memories, beautiful place. So it's great to see that reservoir 93% full and nearly 130% above this historical average. Does this mean we are out of the woods yet with climate change and drought? Of course not. Things could always change, and some are predicting it will. But for now, let's enjoy it and call it random, but hopeful. All right, something not random but still interesting is the World Economic Forum. It's happening now in Davos, and we have heard commentary from some giants in the world of business and investing. And surprisingly, one of the major takeaways from this year's conference is that many are seemingly preparing, or at least getting ready for, a potential Trump win. Yesterday, we heard from JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, softening his tone on the 45th president. According to sources, many in Davos are feeling that everything will be A OK if Trump returns for a second term in January. Maybe they have to say that because they're afraid of him. Who knows? And beyond Davos, my next guest says the market is pricing in maybe a Trump victory or at least change the White House later on this year. Let's find out why he says that. Joining us now is Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income at New Edge Wealth, Ben Emmons. And Ben, I wanna I wanna preface this, because anytime you mention the former guy, a lot of people get jumpy. You are a Dutch citizen, yeah. okay? You're not <laughs> coming at this no. from any political viewpoint, maybe the Dutch view, who knows? Whatever that is, because you almost we almost have to couch it like that so people don't think this is advocating for one way or the other. Absolutely not. But you are seeing signs the market may be telling us something. What is it? Yeah, I was
0: looking at this, what they call the Trump trade at that time. This is just a, you know, lingo in the markets. People thinking of, okay, if that is going to be about lower corporate taxes, higher tariffs, then certain sectors in the economy will perform. And so if you think of semis, if you think of technology, if you think of banks, those are sectors that have thrived under Trump when he was president and the markets again trading it that way. So there's an anticipation that could be the outcome
2: without being determined that it will be. And and, well, by the way, I do a lot with energy. As you know, I cover energy here at CNBC and the renewable stuff. A lot of companies that benefit greatly from the Inflation Reduction Act, they've been tanking. Their stocks have been absolutely whacked the last couple of months. If those stocks suddenly began to turn massively around, which they did a little bit recently with, with the interest rate move. But if they started to turn around, I would bring you on and do the opposite. Is the market pricing in a Biden re-election because things that benefit under that administration are doing well again. But you're seeing a different turn.
0: Yeah, I think that some of those sectors are, like you're saying, they have kind of a not really well performed. But I think what the market's really trying to figure out here is that if the chances are for one candidate to be the president, markets want to have that certainty. So they start to really price in. This is the outcome, even though it's binary. But you're right at that point that yeah. you could switch around, right? So the market's trying to anticipate who will be the, the ultimate candidate.
2: We, listen, the, the Federal Reserve is is meant to be and said to be a political Insert debate here. I get that. Yeah. Jay Powell was nominated by Trump. He's now working for President Biden. President Trump, who's a real estate developer by trade, hates high interest rates. And he has said so. We need lower interest rates, right? Doing this. So you do wonder, maybe you start to see rates moving down. Is that on the idea that if, if Trump comes in, he's going to just start pounding the apolitical Fed for lower rates? Yeah, and the way markets will do this
0: is to say, if you are going to put a lot of tariffs on the economy, it's probably going to slow down the economy and therefore rates go down. That's, I think, the mechanism. But the fact that that could happen, not unlikely. We also have to think about inflation, by the way, where we are currently like nicely mm-hmm. falling down. What will happen when you apply tariffs and how will inflation play out? So... I would think there's a lot of volatility that's going to go into this election and after because we're coming out of already a major shock. What will happen after that?
2: Totally different note. In the late 70s, early 80s, we thought we whooped inflation. It came back, right? Sometimes inflation goes down. I've seen this Red Sea stuff. Shipping rates going up. Oil prices remain fairly elevated. Are you convinced that the battle over inflation is won? Actually I'm not Brian I
0: still see you and a lot
2: of other smart people by the way
0: yeah and and I think I think it's not service sector is really strong we're spending a lot to see retail sales right again strong so that side of the inflation is not cooling off as much and to your point we have disruptions in Suez yep. canal developing so it's going to ripple through the supply chain and it's going we're going to see higher prices again so I'm not so convinced that inflation is Taken care of. <laughs> yeah,
2: we'll see which way these markets move and maybe they shift back the other way. Ben Emmons keeping it right down the Dutch middle. <laughs> yeah. And we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, coming up, a bumpy transition. What is really behind the growth of accidents for new EV drivers? What are they doing wrong? We're going to get some answers from Mark Fields coming up. All right, welcome back. Some good news for Hertz investors. Shares popping today on an Adam Jonas upgrade. Jonas is arguably the most important auto analyst on Wall Street, and he believes Hertz's decision to sell a third of its EV fleet will help mitigate longer term risk. And he might be right. It's not our opinion. Take a look at this new data from LexisNexis Risk Solutions. They're an insurance industry expert, one of the biggest data companies in the world. They found the frequency of insurance claims and the amount paid rose about 14% each for users who switch from gas-powered vehicles to EVs. In other words, more wrecks and higher costs from those wrecks. But why? Joining us now for more is former Ford CEO Mark Fields, CBC contributor. And by the way, board member Hertz, so I'm not going to ask you about Hertz at all, Mark. Don't worry about that. Here's the thing, and we talked about this a little bit last night about what to know about cold weather driving with EVs. And I said that companies like Ford, Rivian, Tesla need to do a better job educating people on how to drive it. And I think also the differences in driving these vehicles, they are not the same.
1: You're exactly right, Brian. Listen, when you get into an EV, uh, the two main differences are really around the driving characteristics. And it's really around the acceleration and the braking right on the acceleration you got this heavier vehicle right compared to an ICE vehicle because it's carrying that big battery pack and you got instantaneous torque so you know the only way i can describe it if if you know if somebody's learning to drive a manual uh do you ever slip a clutch right and the vehicle kind of surges forward yep well it's kind of the same phenomenon here where when you you know you apply your foot to the pedal you're getting instant instant torque and it's the same thing with the brakes, right? It has, you know, the EVs, in particular Teslas, have uh, regenerative braking. And they're just grabbier brakes. Yeah. And so that also impacts not only the driver, but just as importantly, you're seeing a lot of accidents with EVs being rear-ended because the, the, the driver behind them, you know, who doesn't have an EV, can't react this fast. So you got a number of combination of factors here.
2: Yeah, and and I think when I when I when I put my wife and my 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 teenage daughter in, in in an EV that we were driving, they were shocked to learn that your butt is basically the key. You sit down, and to your point, the car turns on and it's completely silent. And if you don't know the car is active, for lack of a better term, I don't want to use the term on. That sounds like an engine. It's active, and you tap the gas. Mark to your point, it lurches forward. You've also got a lot of people in EVs using the one pedal braking, which. I like a lot in certain situations, but what drove me nuts about some things like the Rivian is you can't turn it off. And because I worried that the constant brake light was going to drive the, the people behind me nuts.
1: Yeah, it's just, as I said, you know, it's a different uh, type of driving experience. And it's exacerbated, Brian, right? If you have a household where you have an EV and you have a gas vehicle, and more and more going forward, as people decide to purchase EVs as we get to mass adoption, mm-hmm. they're probably going to have one ICE vehicle and one EV. And when you switch in back and forth between those two vehicles, it's kind of like sometimes when, you know, you get into a vehicle, your newer vehicle that has a backup camera, and so you don't have to turn around, and you get into the older vehicle that doesn't have a backup camera, guess oh. what? You know, you're not turning your head around. So, you know, it's 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 going to be, a, it's it's an issue today. Listen, it solves itself over time as people get used to it. But in that interim period, that's why you're seeing higher accidents rates. That's why you're seeing higher insurance. Because well, why the insurance also, co-
2: Mark, sorry to jump in. I want to get this in. Why also are, are some of these so expensive to repair? Like the, the taillights in some of these are $1,000. I mean, my Jeep taillights, 30 bucks.
1: Yeah, it's gonna, it's expensive because you have a lot of sensors that are incorporated into things like tail lamps. you know, whether it's for parking sensors. For ADAS and those kind of things, so you see a lot more sensors, and then a lot of a lot of accidents. You have you know a lot of underbody uh, damage, and guess what? In EVs, you have that battery pack under there, mm-hmm. so you know that that also increases uh, costs. And then as you go forward, you know Tesla, for example, is going to go to these giga castings. And you know today a vehicle has multiple castings in it. So as you go to these giga castings and you damage the vehicle, well, guess what? it's going to go up because they're going to have to replace that entire big casket.
2: Yeah, I think these are just the things that the dealers, the car dealers need to know. Maybe we need different car, you know, driving schools for each type, because when you got an 8,000-pound vehicle that goes 0 to 60 in three seconds, you better damn well know what you're doing. Mark Fields, really appreciate it. Thank you. We're just educating America. All right. Do you know what happened 44 years ago today? One of the most iconic and best albums, to be frank, of all time, topped the charts. That, of course, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. All, in all it's just a, brick in the wall. You know, corporate control, big government surveillance, who, who could have seen that coming? All right, that was another Brick in the Wall part two. The album stayed at number one for 15 weeks. Pink Floyd will go on to sell more than 30 million copies worldwide. Now you're going to listen to it. That's it for Last Call for tonight. See you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next.
8: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.